You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Good morning, Stonegate. As Jimmy said, my name is Marshall Siegel, husband to Faye, who's with me this morning worshiping with you all, father to Ellis Kai, now nine months old, handful, delightful handful, staff writer, managing editor at DesiringGod.org, and author of Not Yet Married, The Pursuit of Singleness, or Pursuit of Joy in Singleness and Dating, which is why Jimmy and Pastor Rodney and the team asked me to come speak this morning and preach on the topic of singleness. And I love that there is a message on singleness in a series about the family, because single men and women in the church are as much a part of this family as anybody. As he, Pastor Rodney prayed this morning in the pre-service meeting, just reminded us all that a sermon about singleness is not just for single men and women, but it's for the church because this is a family here. Jesus said, who are my mother and brothers? Those who do the will of God. This family defines us even more than any biological family. And so this sermon, I hope, will be an encouragement and strengthen the church as a whole as it ministers to the single men and women among you. Not yet married Christian, you are not a junior varsity Christian. Single Christians are as Christian as any Christian. The same Savior rescuing you and keeping you from wasting your life. The same Spirit at work in you, making you new and equipping you to make a difference in the world. The same mission to tell the whole world about Jesus. But we need new, help, new eyes, we need help to see and embrace what God says about singleness. We need God's help in that. And so I wanna pray and ask for him as we read 1 Corinthians 7, walk through it this morning. I want him to come, breathe his spirit on these words and make them real for us, change us by them. So will you pray with me before we turn to his word? Father in heaven, we come again to you over your word asking for your help, for clarity, for conviction, for freedom, for passion. Please apply your spirit who is alive and at work within us. Please apply your spirit to these words in front of us in 1 Corinthians 7 and help us see. Open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your law. You know each of the needs here this morning. You know my needs. You know the needs of each of the the men and women here this morning. So we're asking you to speak, to provide, to inspire, to convict. Come and do what only you can do by your spirit in these minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wanted to be married long before I could even drive. Maybe I watched too many Disney movies. I'm sure that I watched too many Disney movies. Maybe the burn, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 9, better to marry than to burn with passion. Maybe the burn just started a little earlier for me than some of my peers. I think though, that at least in my best moments, the desire was born watching my parents love each other. I watched the friendship and romance that Rick and Adrian Siegel enjoyed, and I wanted that for myself. 
Jesus saved me when I was 15, 15, just a few weeks after breaking up with my fourth serious girlfriend in three years. Four girlfriends, serious girlfriends, before I could even drive, much less marry. I dated off and on for the next 14 years, probably doing things more wrong than right. I experienced more impatience, disappointment, temptation, and regret in dating than in any other area of my life. And so singleness, my singleness became a billboard of all of that brokenness. A louder and louder reminder to me of my unfulfilled desires for marriage, of my shame-filled failures in my dating relationships, and of my unwillingness to wait for God, to trust him while I waited. Singleness felt lonely as I waited for someone to come into my life and never leave again. It felt incomplete as I wondered whether God would ever bring my other half or fill this massive glaring hole in my life. At least it looked massive and glaring in the mirror. Singleness filled me with self-pity as I looked around and wanted what everybody else had and pridefully often thought I deserved more than them. Marriage and dating towered above all of my other idols over those years, and so singleness simultaneously became my, this unrelenting judge with me everywhere I went and my unwanted roommate, always reminding me of what I didn't have yet and what I didn't do right. You need to know, whether you're single or married, you need to know that there are unique dangers in singleness. Satan is after single people. He's after us all, all the time, uh, prowling like a roaring lion. But he's after single people in some unique ways that we need to be aware of. He loves to deceive and discourage you and derail your devotion and ministry. He will try to convince you that you're not gifted or that your gifts aren't needed or wanted in the church. He'll try to isolate you from people around you that you need in your walk with Christ and who need you in their walk with Christ. He will try to distract you, persuading you to pour all of yourself, all of your time and energy into school or into your career or into relationships or into entertainment. Satan is after single people. But God intends to use you, your time, your gifts, your singleness, he intends to use these precious single years right now as you are for his glory. You don't have to wait to start doing the most important work you'll ever do. The Apostle Paul, an unmarried man who wrote most of the New Testament, he writes in 1 Corinthians 7, a little bit earlier than the passage we're gonna look at this morning, he writes, now as a concession, not as a command, I say this, I wish that all were as, my, as I myself am, that is single, unmarried. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Perhaps the greatest temptation in singleness is to assume that marriage will meet all our unmet needs, solve all our weaknesses, organize our lives and unleash our gifts. 
far from the solution, though, Paul here in 1 Corinthians 7, he makes marriage out to be kind of a problematic plan B for life and ministry. Marry if you must, he might say, but be warned, following Jesus is not easier when you join yourself to another sinner in this fallen world. While marriage will bring joy and help and relief in certain areas, it will multiply distractions and anxieties in others. We're intimately responsible for this other person, his or her needs and dreams and growth. It's a high calling and it's a good calling, but it's a demanding one that will keep us from investing ourselves as fully in many other good things. If God leads you to marry, you may never know a season like the one that you're in right now. A season of singleness is not the minor leagues of Marriage, it has the potential to be a unique period of undivided devotion to Christ and undistracted ministry to others. You're all dressed up, having every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1, with literally everywhere to go. The not yet married life and even the, ne the never married life, so the not yet married life, even the never married life are not waiting rooms in the church God has made them into highways for him. I need to clarify because my wife's from California that when I say highways, I mean Minneapolis highways, not LA highways. Open, fast moving, free. God wants single people to see the awesome potential of this season of life, whether it's two more years or five more years, or it's clear in 1 Corinthians 7, whether it's for the rest of your life. He wants you to see the awesome potential of these years. If we're looking for an apology from the Bible about our singleness, we're simply not going to find it. In fact, instead of the commiseration that we might be looking for, hoping for, wanting, we find instead an intimate and important commission. And that's what we're going to look at in 1 Corinthians 7 this morning. So that longer than usual introduction brings us to our verses, 1 Corinthians 7, Verses 25 to 35, if you have a Bible, it'll be helpful to keep it open and follow along with me. We'll be back and forth uh, in these verses for the next several minutes. Paul says in verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So the word for betrothed here is actually closer to unmarried than it is to engaged. We use betrothed more in engagement in America today. But this is more about unmarried people, single people, than it is about engaged people, although I think they were in mind as well. Paul is speaking to single Christians, just like he did in 1 Corinthians 7, a little bit earlier, verses 6 through 8, when he says, Now is a concession, very similar, not a command. I say this, I wish that all were as myself am, just like we just read, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, unmarried, single, betrothed. He's talking to single Christians in the church. And it seems like the believers in Corinth were not a lot unlike believers today in America. They were very much wanting to be married, and they dreaded the idea that they might have to settle, quote, settle for singleness. You can hear this in the way that Paul speaks to them, pastors them. He's working hard, though, to turn that heart, their hearts, our hearts, over 
on these issues though. He wants them and us to prize and maximize singleness and get married if we have to. We tend to think of marriage as the ideal and we wonder whether we could ever possibly survive singleness. I know I felt that way over those 14 years. But Paul thinks it should be the other way around. In his mind, there's a simplicity and a freedom and a unity to the unmarried heart in love with Jesus that every Christian should envy. A simplicity, a freedom, a unity to the unmarried heart in love with Jesus that everyone, all of us, should envy. And as beautiful and indispensable as marriage is in the church, and it is beautiful and indispensable, he sees, Paul sees, that does not make following Jesus any easier or more complete. In fact, it creates some distance between us and Christ and his mission. It's a necessary distance, a God-ordained distance, a Christ-exalting distance, a gospel-declaring distance, but it's still a distance. Some of the time and attention and energy we would have spent alone with the Lord or evangelizing the lost or discipling believers in the Bible, some of that time and energy and effort will now be spent caring for a spouse or a family. Paul loves that kind of ministry. He loves husbands caring for wives and wives caring for husbands and parents caring for children. It's all throughout his letters and you've heard it throughout this sermon series over the last number of weeks. Paul, the Bible, exalt that kind of ministry. But, he, but Paul is, is trying to undo, correct a common misconception. And I think that misconception is just as common today as it was then. And the misconception is this, that the fullest Christian life only ever happens inside of marriage. And Paul wants to say very clearly, no. The fullest Christian life only ever happens inside of Christ. And singleness allows us the opportunity to invest and focus in ways that marriage doesn't, in that greatest calling, in that greatest joy. So before I move on to say more about why that's the case, I wanna pause for a second uh, over this first verse. This is the verse that stuck out to me, stopped me most as I prepared for this weekend over the last several weeks. First Corinthians 7, verse 25, he says, now concerning the betrothed, the unmarried, the single, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Paul goes out of his way in this chapter over and over and over again to say, that this is not a command, but that this is counsel. This is counsel from Paul about singleness and marriage. It is not sin to marry. He wants to say that very clearly, which means that men and women in love with Jesus can make much of Jesus by marrying a husband or a wife in love with Jesus. It is not sin to marry. We glorify God by getting married. We can make much of Jesus by marrying someone else who wants to make much of Jesus. His counsel is not about right and wrong here, but it's about good and better. And we see that even more clearly in verse 38 when he says, so then he who marries his betrothed does well and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Now you can choose to believe that or not. But as I studied these verses, these were the words that stuck out to me most as I looked through chapter seven again, fresh over the last couple of weeks. 
I have no commands from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Trustworthy. I felt Paul saying to me, do you trust me? Marshall, do you trust me? Because he says it's not a command, we're probably, and because we, many of us want to be married, we're probably likely to hear it more as a take it or leave it. I give you no command, take it or leave it. If you agree with me, great. If not, go get married. I don't think Paul is saying take it or leave it. I think he's saying, he's pleading, you can trust me. You really can trust me. I know what's good for you. So do you trust him? Do you trust him about singleness? Do you trust him about your singleness? Do you trust him about marriage? Do you trust him about work and sexual immorality and dishonesty and money and divisions in the church and evangelism and heaven and happiness? The question at the bottom of 1 Corinthians 7, what Paul says about singleness and marriage, the question at the bottom of it all is what role does this book play in your life? Is it a library of really good ideas that may or may not apply to you and you just kind of sort through and pick which ones seem to apply to your situation? Or is it the foundation under all your life and hope and happiness? Does this book dictate and shape everything, absolutely everything you think and do and say? Is this the foundation of your life? Do you trust me? If nothing else happens this morning, I want you to leave wanting to think about singleness the way that God thinks about singleness, no matter what anyone else thinks about singleness. I want you to leave this morning wanting to feel about singleness the way that God feels about singleness, no matter what anyone else feels about singleness. I don't want your life, your singleness to be dictated by what everyone else thinks and feels about singleness. We all need to learn to trust that God knows what's best for us, that he knows what's good for us, even when it seems like something else would be better for us. When Paul says, so then he, he who marries does well and he who refrains from marriage will do even better, he's not writing an opinion piece for the Dallas Morning News. These are words breathed out by God and profitable for you, for your singleness, for your marriage, for your ministry, so that you would be complete, lacking nothing, equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 17. These are words breathed out by God for us. Do you trust me? Paul goes on to explain why he believes it would be better for Christians to remain single in the next verses, 29 to 31. <clears throat> he says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world 
as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So it's all in a section about unmarried single people. So what's Paul doing here? How do men and women who are married to a spouse live as though they had none? That's the way that he talks about it here. And how does that change how we think about the not yet married life? We know he's not saying that husbands and wives should ignore their spouses for the sake of Christ. We know that because of places like Ephesians 5. Paul says very clearly, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then a few verses later, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So let's try to put those together and see if it works. So wives, act like your husband doesn't exist as though you had none, but submit to him, loving him like the church loves Christ. Doesn't make sense. And then husbands, pay no attention to your wife, but die every day for her, loving her in the relentless, sacrificial, and personal way that Jesus loves you, that Jesus loves the church. It doesn't make any sense. So what is Paul trying to say then about marriage and about singleness? I think what he's trying to say is that when Jesus Christ and his cause come into a human heart, nothing else, not even marriage, nothing else matters by comparison. It does matter. Marriage matters. Suffering and loss matter. Work and possessions matter. But all of it is so small and temporary compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus and to the pressing, compared with the pressing need to make the most of this life for him. It's all small and temporary and passing by comparison. If it looks like a husband's life is all about his wife, if my life looks like it's all about Faye, then Jesus begins to look pretty small next to Faye. If a disappointment or a trial or a loss utterly devastates us, then Jesus begins to look weak and unreliable. If we are our happiest at work or watching another playoff game or shopping at the mall, Jesus will look boring and unsatisfying. If Christian singleness feels empty, insignificant, meaningless, what will that say about Jesus? But if Christian singleness looks full and secure and meaningful, it will look very different from singleness in the world. And it will say something amazing about how big and strong and satisfying your Jesus really is. Let those who are married live as though they were not. Let those who mourn live as if they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as if they weren't. Let those who have in this life live as if they didn't have. And let those who work live as if they were not working. Why? Paul gives the answer twice in the verses I just read. First in verse 29, 
He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. And then he says the same thing again in verse 31 when he says, for the present form of this world is passing away. Unlike you and me and heaven, earth is expiring and relatively quickly. Everything around you that looks so real and strong and entertaining, it will be gone before we know it. This world, its promises, its experiences, its priorities, they are not the best investment of our time or energy or singleness. Life is short. Every single life is short. You and everyone around you will live on average for a little more than 70 years. That will feel like less than a bathroom break compared with your eternity with Christ. Everything in the world is teaching you to stretch out every moment as long as possible, to soak up every last drop from your time here on earth. But you were not made for this, and you won't be here long. Life is short, and everything we have and see here is passing away. Everything but Jesus. So what's the point of verses 29 to 31? I think the point, at least in some words, would be That to be a Christian is to be not yet married. All of us are waiting for a different wedding day. A wedding day when we are reunited, joined with our Savior and King once and for all. And we'll sing on that day the words of Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Don't be mistaken, we will all be married. And that marriage should shape every other desire and longing we have in this life. Desires for marriage, or for a job, or for a better job, or for a better home, or whatever it is that you want. Our, that marriage out in front of us, we will all be married. That marriage should define and shape all of our other desires and longings. We live and mourn and rejoice and buy and work and marry knowing that we were not made or saved for anything in this world, but for a marriage to come, the marriage to end all marriages. Whether we ever marry a husband or a wife, we were made and saved for someone else, for Jesus. So what makes singleness so precious to Paul? Verses 32 to 35 lay out one big reason why. Said several different ways. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Marriage is very good. The Bible tells us so, and I can tell you from my experience, now two years just celebrated our two-year anniversary on April 
10th. Marriage is very good, but it does demand a lot of you. And any married person can tell you that. Marriage will not complete you, at least not in the way that Hollywood would have us believe. Marriage will more likely divide you. Paul loved marriage, and he loved what a Christian marriage says to the world. We see that in Ephesians 5, like we just read, and elsewhere. But he also knew what a love like that costs. He knew that intimacy in a covenant, it comes with great responsibility. That the blessings, and they are many, that the blessings come with unique and heavy burdens to bear. Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 28, If you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This word that Paul uses for worldly troubles here, he also uses to describe just life's trouble in general in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He uses the same word to describe poverty in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 2. And then persecution in 1 Thessalonians 1. Six, and then he even uses this word, this word for worldly troubles to describe the cross. Jesus dying, being tortured on a cross, crucified in our place in Colossians 1.24. And then he uses that word for marriage. It doesn't mean that marriage isn't filled with incredible joy. All of Paul's deepest, greatest, fullest joys came through sacrifice and suffering. Even the hardest things in marriage come with hope and with the potential for real and lasting happiness. Like everything difficult done for Christ, marriage strengthens us to endure in the faith. It refines us and purifies our character. It reinforces the hope that we have in our Redeemer. And it reminds us daily, day in, day out, of the overwhelming flood of God's love for us. So why would Paul advise against it? Why would he discourage us from getting married and instead encourage us to maximize leverage and joy the season of singleness? He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. Anxiety in marriage is not ungodly or unnecessary. Uh, It's not always ungodly. I'm sure it can be ungodly. In fact, anxiety is critical to a healthy marriage. If a wife has no concern for her husband or a husband has no concern or anxiety for his wife, the marriage might survive, but it will not be healthy and it definitely won't thrive. We have to feel a constant responsibility for one another, daily being attentive to one another's needs, daily and joyfully being distracted with one another. The distractions aren't necessarily burdensome, but they're real. And that's what Paul's highlighting here. He loves the kind of godly anxiety that happens in a marriage when when a husband and wife are caring for each other. But he's warning all of us about the distractions that that brings into a life. It doesn't mean that you won't find creative and meaningful ways to pursue Christ and do ministry together. Faye and I are figuring this out all the time, always asking the question, how can I serve you in your walk with the Lord and help you grow in your joy in him? And how can we together partner in ministry to help others seek our God and know him and enjoy him? That's gonna happen. It should, it does. 
but it does mean that some of the time that you might have invested in your personal devotion with the Lord and some of the time you might have used uh, using your gifts for the Great Commission, some of that will be now focused on caring for a spouse. And then if the Lord brings children on your family. In marriage, you will see and experience the gospel in ways that you never have any other way. It's a beautiful way to see and rehearse and taste the gospel message, but you also may have fewer opportunities to pray or to read or to serve outside of your home in ministry. It's a good trade. I love being married, but it's a real trade. And Paul is trying to help us count the cost as we weigh our desires for marriage and uh, as we live in this this season of singleness. Paul so believed in the potential of singleness that he even encouraged widows to remain single. Verses 38 to 40, just beyond our passage for this morning, he says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. So think about that for a minute. Potentially a 30 or 40 or 50-year-old woman left alone, maybe with children, no husband to provide for or protect her. Paul says that even she may be better off remaining single. Happier is the word that he uses there in verse 40. He could only say that because of how focused he was on the next life and on making this life count for that one. So his conclusion in it all, and we've read this verse already, so then he who marries his betrothed does well and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Marriage is good. Singleness may be even better. Are your views of Jesus, heaven, hell, and the Bible, are they big enough to believe that? But Marshall, where do I go and what do I do? If I buy everything that you're saying about singleness, how do I make the most of this, these single years with Christ? I can't answer that for everyone. Obviously, uh, your story will look different than mine and And really, it'll probably look different than almost any other person's. But I hope in these next minutes to envision you for thinking more, praying more about what it could be for you. I have three lessons here, three three lessons that I hope will help you begin living single, satisfied, and sent. So number one, notice the people God has already put around you. Notice the people God has already put around you. Around you, God may not have brought a husband or a wife into your life yet, but he has put you in one particular place on the planet that you would seek him and help others seek him. That's God's mission statement for your campus, your apartment building, your block, wherever you live and study and work. It says it in Acts 17. I get those words from Acts 17 when Paul says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. 
God has determined our dwelling place today, our home, in our neighborhood, in our city, so that we would seek him and enjoy him and help others do the same, that they would seek him and enjoy him. It's not beyond God to use you to convert someone in a random interaction at a coffee shop or at the gym. He does that. I think he does that all the time. But the front lines of disciple making is friendship. And friendship requires some shared space, a hobby, an interest, maybe even just literally space, geography, a place where paths cross. Notice the people that God has put in your life, however he has put them in your life, and do everything you can in this season to help them seek and know and enjoy God. For us, and this is true not just for single people, for married people, all of us should be asking this question all the time. For Faye and I, we've been praying for our neighbors. On the right side, we have Christian and Kristen, and they're Two kids, Gabriel and Millie, across the street, Alton and Missy, and their two little ones, and then just moved in next door, Tim and his two daughters. We're praying, God, how would you use us, our gifts, our time? How would you use us to help them seek and find and enjoy Jesus? You could have, God, you could have put us two blocks south, and you could have put us two blocks north, but you put us right here on Stinson Boulevard. Why? so that these people might seek him, find him, enjoy him. Who are those people in your life? Notice the people God has already put in your life and do everything you can to help them seek and find Jesus. Number two, practice selflessness while you're still living alone. Philippians 2 verses three and four says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Those two verses will only get harder in marriage. So practice now. Identify a couple of people or families, especially in the church, but in your life, identify a couple of people or families for whom you could lay down your single life. No one is expecting you to care for or provide for anyone but yourself. No one except for God. God is waiting, wanting you to pour yourself out in love with all of the gifts that he's given you. He wants to see you pour yourself out in love selflessly for others so that they might know the love that you received from him through Christ. Regardless of your paycheck, you have received much from him. It might be it might be money or food, but it's more likely going to be time and energy. Those are much higher currencies in love. Financially, you're probably just supporting one person. So sure, save modestly for the days when you'll need more. But while you wait, look for ways to provide for others. While you're not buying groceries for five or dinner for two or endless diapers, which is the season that we're in right now, Budget to bless. Look for creative, selfless, generous ways to provide for the needs of others around you, specifically the needs here at Stonegate. Those habits will serve your future spouse immensely if the Lord ever brings you a husband or a wife. And, and regardless of whether he does, Jesus will shine beautifully through you right now to the people that are in your life right now. Practice selflessness 
while you're still alone. Thirdly, lastly, do radical, time-consuming things for God. Leverage your singleness to dream bigger, more costly dreams for Jesus. Start a daily prayer meeting or some regular outreach. Commit to mentor several men or women younger than you in the faith. Organize a new Christ-centered community service project in your neighborhood or in a neighborhood close by. Do all of the above. You, you'd be surprised with God's spirit inside of you, working inside of you, and a resolve to make the most of your singleness, how much you and your other single friends can accomplish for the kingdom. Be radical, but not reckless. And that'll be some of your temptations. Find people in your life who love you enough to say, no, you don't need to go do that or that. The, the object here, the objective is not to spread yourself dangerously thin, but it is to pray and say, Lord, how can I make the most of this season? How could I use the, the freedom that I have now as a single person to make the most of you in this season? While I was still single, I led a Bible study at a rehab center down, down the street from me, down from my apartment. It was an alcohol dependency clinic. Earlier than that, I had mentored high school students through Young Life. In a different season, I started a small group for post-college men and women at our church. I went on several missions trips to Dominican Republic, India, Ethiopia. I worked with our church's neighborhood outreach ministry to start an ESL class and to start a ministry to refugees in our neighborhood, refugees from Somalia that are coming to the Twin Cities. Living for God's glory this year might not look like any of that, and it may not look like anyone else in this room. But what I'm asking, what I'm calling for this morning is dream about what it could look like for you. Stop and pray and dream and ask, God, what could it look like for me? How could I use my gifts in this season to do something radical and time-consuming for Jesus and for his fame? So I wanna close this way. While I wallowed in my singleness for 10 or more years, uh, over that period where I was wanting and trying to get married, wanting so desperately to be married. While I wallowed in my singleness over those years, I missed what the Bible says about happiness. In my mind, real joy always laid somewhere on the far side of matrimony. I just had to be willing to wait for it. But no one in Christ ever has to wait for joy. We may have to wait for a husband or a wife or for a job or for physical healing or relief or for reconciliation with family members or with friends. We may have to wait for those things and a thousand more things with no guarantee from God that any of those things will ever come to us in this life. But the sinless son of God, Jesus Christ, he bled and died so that you and I never have to wait for happiness. He says so when he tells the story in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he hides, all that he has, and buys that field. Joy in God is not buried in some future circumstance, certainly not in marriage. Joy in God is buried in the ground under our feet today. 
The man or woman who has found their joy in Jesus isn't desperately searching for joy anymore. No, we are desperately doing everything, anything and everything to have more of him. We see every desire and longing through the lens of having already discovered and secured our greatest treasure. Real happiness is not hidden in marriage. I can promise you that. Real happiness is hidden in him. If we think we have to achieve a certain relationship status or income level or ministry profile before we experience real satisfaction, we haven't tapped into what he promises to be for us today. We haven't looked hard enough at the ground beneath our feet, at the field beneath our feet. Singleness will be torture if we have not given our hearts away to God. Marriage may be even worse. The only people who are truly happy in marriage are not mainly happy because of marriage, but they are happy in God. And that makes marriage great. And if you love God like that, if your joy is in God like that, even unwanted singleness can be satisfying. If your joy is fully, most deeply, most securely in God, unwanted singleness can be full, secure, fruitful, meaningful. You can long to be married and want so desperately to meet your husband or wife, and you can still love every single minute of your single life with Jesus. Let me pray. King Jesus, our Lord, Savior, and greatest treasure, Satisfy us now this morning with your steadfast love so that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Satisfy us first and foremost and deepest with yourself so that we might find a joy strong enough to carry us through any circumstance in this life, strong enough to carry us through any longing or desire or suffering or grief, anchor our hearts and lives in you, whether we're single or married. Anchor our hearts in you, we pray. For we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.